J.C. Corcoran Podcast. Girl, oh girl, you're looking so fine tonight, girl. And I told you I'd make love to you all night long. All night long. Uh, but girl. Girl. Oh, girl. Ooh, girl. Let's try to be realistic, girl. Nobody really makes love all night long. That's impossible. Though that would be impressive, girl. It's a little bit excessive, girl. Too much. And it would probably get uncomfortable. To be that sexual Chafing And don't forget that we have work tomorrow 8 a.m. So we should really make sure we get some sleep But girl Girl I'll make love to you the best I can But it's not gonna last real long Honesty Uh, well I apologize in advance I can probably give you seven minutes Seven minutes if you don't move around too much Otherwise I'll probably give you four minutes Four minutes Uh, cause when you move I get excited, girl And hey Hey Is it cool if I leave my shirt on, girl? Cause I just had a big dinner Boston Market And I'm struggling with some negative body issues Girl I would love nothing more than to make sweet honey dip love to you till the break of dawn. But unfortunately, sex is something that I'm just not very good at. So please, girl, just try not to laugh at me, no matter how awkward this gets. Girl! Girl! Let's talk sexual positions, girl. I hope you like the missionary. Tried and true. Cause that's the only one that I'm really comfortable with. And girl! Just one more quick little thing, girl Please feel free to fake an orgasm I won't know Cause that'll make me feel like I'm doing well Oh, girl No, I'm just getting warmed up Happy to see you again Don't be nervous, don't be rocky You're our teenage guest is jockey now And let me begin by wishing you a beautiful, like, look Did that voice inside you say I've heard it all before It's like deja vu all over again It is Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. Hi kids, you're at jconline.com. When that guy says Boston Market. It just cracks me up. All right, we got a $1.73 billion Powerball tonight. Everybody talking about that. I would like to start today's podcast with a complaint. When you get older, you have to go to a lot of doctors. I was just talking to a fellow broadcaster who is a couple of years older than me, and we are just laughing about how many doctors we all have to see all the time. Just go from one to the next. There have been times where I've had two doctor's appointments in the same day. So anyhow, and, and I should point out that this isn't just with medical issues either. It just seems like it's a lot of stuff. But I'll just use the issue with regard to doctors because this is the one that's been happening to me a lot. You go to the doctor. Okay, fine. We'll see you in three months or six months or whatever it is. You're cured. You get home and maybe it's a couple of hours, maybe it's a day or two, but you start getting all these texts and emails from the doctor saying, how did we do? 
And if that was the only question, I'd say, you did fine. Or, or everything still hurts, you didn't do fine. But that's not what it is. It's a survey, and it takes like 10 minutes to fill out. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. First, some accountability is nice. I mean, the idea of, you know, the doctor basically saying, well, we don't want to just send you home. We want to know how we did. I guess at face value, there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't like getting homework from the doctor. I'm busy. I got other stuff I want to do. And I just don't like the idea of having to sit there and fill out a survey just because I went to the doctor. Now, the other thing that's going on here, and I, I don't think it has to do with the medical profession. I think it has to do with other uh, stores and services and stuff like that. What happens is that people get bonuses based on positive reviews from consumers, customers, whatever. So if somebody sells you a car, because that's the other place that happens too. Sell you a car and now you start getting, you know, here's our customer survey. That's homework. I don't like homework. And again, I'm not opposed to the idea of you wanting to know how you did, but it's a little presumptive on their part to think that we have time or interest in just sitting and filling out surveys because I don't. And then the other one I don't like is, all right, this just happened to me, two, it was either two days or three days ago. There's uh, some weird thing with the health insurance and it's going to take 48, maybe 72 hours to get a response from the health insurer. And then she says to me, if you don't hear back from us by next week, give us a call. What the hell sort of customer service is that? You're telling me while you have me on the phone that you might just drop the ball and that you don't really care. And somehow then it becomes my responsibility to get back to you. Isn't it your responsibility to make sure that you get back to me? The idea of just saying, yeah, we may just forget about you or we may not care very much about this. So if we get busy with other stuff or, you know, we're just lazy, you, you call us. What the hell's going on? What's going on? All right, I want to get this one right at the top of today's podcast, too, because this is something that everybody can use, at least in theory. Usually you're in the car and you're driving along and you realize, I got to go. And I don't just have to go. I got to go really, really badly. And I got to go really soon. But you also know you're maybe 10 minutes away, maybe even 20 minutes away from wherever it is you're going to be able to go to use the bathroom. And But suddenly, somehow, the urge just seems to go away. But then, as soon as you pull into your driveway, you got to go so bad you almost ruin your seat, if you know what I mean. Well, somebody asked the doctors why it happens and what you can do about it. And here comes the science. Basically, your brain and your bladder are constantly communicating to prevent you from being in your pants. And by the way, they're pretty good at it, at that communication. If your brain knows there isn't a bathroom nearby, it tells the muscles around your bladder to cut it out. But as soon as you know you're near a bathroom, your bladder does too, and those muscles start to contract, gets harder to hold it in, and the urge to pee skyrockets. So is there anything you can do about it? There's actually a name for this, by the way. The answer, by the way, is yes and no. There's a term for this that's called latchkey incontinence because it tends to happen while we're fumbling for our keys at the front door. It's a natural response. can't really trick yourself into thinking you have more time, but the more it happens, the more likely it is to happen again. 
So if you can break that pattern, it might happen less. Anyhow, you're essentially teaching your brain it's time to pee as soon as you see your front door, and that's not good. So if it's a common problem, you might want to start using the bathroom before you get in the car, even if you don't necessarily need to go at that time. It's just a good idea. But now, now that's that's the story as it appears Today, the one I'm reading you, I'm going to add something because I'm going to talk about the other problem. Yeah, when you don't have an issue with number one, it's number two. And number two with a bullet, with a big uh, bold face and question mark and exclamation point and the whole thing. Yeah, we're talking diarrhea. Now, somebody told me this, and I'll be honest, I don't know if it works for women. I do know that I've tried it, and at least on a couple of occasions, it worked. You're driving along, you get that feeling, you're like, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble here. I'm in big trouble because I know I got to go, and I also know I got to go really badly, and I'm also realizing I don't know what options I've got here. I'm not seeing a bathroom in my immediate future. What do I do now? Well, somebody told me this a long time ago, and like I said, I've tried it, and it works. You're driving along, and you have that feeling. Think about sex. Now, at face value, you're like, what? And maybe that's the last thing you want to think about when you're <laughs> experiencing this problem. But I'm telling you, try it the next time it happens. Start thinking about sex. It's like there's some sort of a cutoff valve. And and it's almost like your sphincter ter- takes over and it starts thinking about that instead of the fact that you've got to go to the bathroom really badly. I'm not going to say it works for everybody. I'm not going to say it works for a long time. But if you can just buy a couple of minutes, usually, that's all you really need. You'll come up with some sort of idea or you'll see a gas station or something. But you just start thinking about sex. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't experienced it myself. And normally when you do a story like this, you, you say, try it and let me know if it works. In this case, try it. And keep it to yourself, okay? I don't don't want to know anything more about it. A seminal moment in my life and my career on this date in 1976. I had uh, gotten out of college in 75. I'd gotten fired from my first out-of-college radio job in Rockford, Illinois. I went to Flint, Michigan. I only lasted three months there. That was sort of one of those fuck you, I quit situations, came back to Chicago to live at home with my mom and dad trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And there was a uh, station in Chicago that was not really big, but it wasn't really small either. The call letters were WSDM, and it was at 98, which meant smack dab in the middle. SDM, get it? Smack dab in the middle. The station had gone through a couple of different changes. It had started sort of like as a jazz rock station and then in the i guess it was probably early 1970s they came up with a gimmick and the gimmick was to have all female disc jockeys every single person on the air was female and again this is 1976 so there aren't even that many women on the air in the first place let alone an entire station with female disc jockeys but they tried it and if nothing else the curiosity factor and the novelty of the whole thing gave them a little bit of a bump And as gimmicks go, especially in the radio business, they're only effective for a short time. It's like a bunch of stations went disco, and, you know, after two years, it just burned out, and that was the end of that. And and again, this was a gimmick, and it did burn out, and so they started hiring guys again. 
a lot of the women were still on the on-air staff, but now it was men and it was women, which again, doesn't sound like that big a deal now in 2023, but in 1976, trust me, it was a big, big deal to have any women on the air. So I had a friend from college who had latched on at that station, and I just went up to visit him one day. He's like, hey, come on up. I'll show you the station. Okay, fine. I come up, 37th floor of the John Hancock Building in Chicago's Loop. Beautiful views outside the window. I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's got it made. I don't think he was making much money. And like I said, this it wasn't one, it wasn't one of the big stations, but it wasn't in last place either. So we're just sitting there, and he's showing me the station, and lo and behold, in walks the program director, and he's looking at me like, who the hell are you? And I didn't know who he was either, so I looked at him like, who the hell are, who the hell are you? And we just had a little laugh about that, and I was making him laugh. I don't know what we were talking about. I have no recollection of it, but I just remember teasing my friend and then making some other jokes, and this guy thought I was a riot. And so, you know, that was the end of it. I went back home. And about two or three days later, I get a call from my friend who's working at the station. And he says, hey, Bert wants to know if you want a part-time gig here at the radio station. It's like, are you kidding me? And now I'm thinking I'm a year out of college. I'm going to be working in Chicago radio. And so sure enough, I get the gig. I'm on on weekends, like on Saturday and Sunday nights. My mom and dad are listening. All my college friends all listening. They're thinking I really hit the big time. I'm on an FM station in Chicago. And everything's going, you know, just swimmingly. And then a couple of months into the gig, the guy who hires me, he gets fired. And they bring in a bunch of people from out of town. They change everything about the radio station. I get pushed to like Saturday's overnight show or something like that. And I just thought that was the end. My dad used to say, whenever you're working for somebody other than the person who hired you, you're on thin ice. And I found that to be 100% true down through the years. And that's not just the radio business either. I think that's true of probably anything. I think it's probably more prevalent in electronic media, but you get the point. Now, the other really interesting aspect of life at this particular radio station, WSDM in Chicago, is that it was owned by Chess Records. Chess records, as in the legendary chess records like, you know, Chuck Berry, Holland Wolf, John Lee Hooker, Bo Diddley, and all the Chicago blues artists. So up and down the hallways are these beautifully framed photographs of Chuck Berry, and there's gold records all over the place, all this chess record stuff. If you're unfamiliar with the chess records story, just Google it sometime. It'll knock you over how pivotal this particular record company based in Chicago was in uh, promoting and sort of propagating the whole idea of rhythm and blues and just blues in general and everything we came to know and love over the many, many moons. Being a young boy of, what, 22 or 23, I didn't really have that much appreciation for it at the time, but I sure do now. So here is, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. That guy who hired me, is now in his mid-80s, and we're still very close friends. And I'll be calling him today right after the podcast to remind him, because he doesn't remember this date, but it was a big, big deal for me. Wednesday, October 11, 1976, and I get my first really significant gig in Chicago radio. 
The other big milepost was a year earlier on this date, 1975, when the very first edition of Saturday Night Live started. And I love telling this story because people always talk about Saturday Night Live from New York. It's Saturday Night, you know, SNL, everything, Saturday Night Live. The show wasn't called Saturday Night Live in its first couple of seasons. It was called NBC Saturday Night. Why? Because at the same time, over on ABC, Howard Cosell was doing a show called Saturday Night Live. And it was in prime time. It was on, I think, at 7 or 8 o'clock. And it was uh, supposed to be like a version, like an updated version of the Ed Sullivan show, like a comedy variety show. And it was hosted by Howard Cosell. And it was only on for, I think, a couple of seasons, maybe two seasons. And it was called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. And another little asterisk next to it, too, was the fact that as part of that show that Howard Cosell was doing, they had a, uh, a, a comedy troupe called The Primetime Players. And they would come on and do comedy sketches and things like that. So when Saturday Night Live came along, they called themselves the not ready for primetime players. Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase, you know the whole story. And so at some point in the 70s, after Howard Cosell's show went off the air, people just started calling it Saturday Night Live, even though the show wasn't called that. It was called NBC Saturday Night. And eventually, the network just sort of like, this is what everybody's calling it, so I guess we'll start calling it that now too. And so now here it is, almost 50 years later, and we're still calling it Saturday Night Live, even though <laughs> there was another show on the air with that title. And the rest, as they say, is history. George Carlin, by the way, the first host of Saturday Night Live. Down through the years, there were a lot of discussions, too, about having a permanent host. One of the names that was raised was David Letterman, but they scrapped that idea. And if you watch some of those old shows, because you know, Jane Curtin just raised a lot of eyebrows. This was maybe two months ago. And she said, yeah, I went back and watched some of those first season shows, and they were just dreadful. They were terrible. They were horrible. And she's right. They don't hold up. A couple of the sketches do. And I mean a couple. Weekend Update, some of the stuff Chevy Chase did, some of the stuff Gilda Radner did. Bill Murray didn't come along until the second year of Saturday Night Live. But the sketches went on way too long. There was They don't have like the hair and the makeup that they do now, or even the set design or anything like that. Dan Aykroyd would come out and uh, imitate Jimmy Carter, but he would just sort of like do the voice. No hair, no makeup, no attempt to look like Jimmy Carter at all. The shows look so primitive. And also sometimes like the last 20 minutes of the show was dedicated to Jim Henson and the Muppets. And those sketches were brutally long and incredibly unfunny. It took years for Lauren Michaels to tighten things up to the point now where it's just boom ba da boom ba da boom ba I mean, they are really at the top of their game on Saturday Night Live, and it's been that way for the last few years. Incredible cast members. I used to think Chevy Chase did a great job with Weekend Update. He invented that guy. Dennis Miller came along. I thought he did a good job. I loved Norm MacDonald <laughs> doing, doing Weekend Update. But this thing that uh, Michael Che and Colin Jost have going right now, they're playing a completely different game. They are so, so good at Weekend Update. And this, this James Austin Johnson, Saturday Night Live is coming back this weekend, and everybody's excited about Pete Davidson hosting the show, but I'm more excited about just getting James Austin Johnson back. This guy can imitate anybody. 
he does the absolute best Trump of anybody ever, and it doesn't stop there. I haven't played this in, oh gosh, probably six, eight, nine months. And what is this? October 11th, October 11th. We're about 10 weeks till Christmas. That's it. 10 weeks. So this is an example of James Austin Johnson when he was on with uh, Jimmy Fallon, and I think you'll get the idea. And Jimmy Fallon does some awfully good imitations of people, but you can tell he is just cowering in the shadow of James Austin Johnson, who is just in the ionosphere when it comes to this stuff. He was calling somebody in Washington a liar, and then he went, he's a liar, the liar, the liar, John Lovitz, John Lovitz, the show's not as good anymore. It's not as good anymore. We don't watch the show, but they got a new guy doing me. I hear he's pretty good. I hear he's pretty good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because I know you're a fan of Bob I Dylan. I know you're a fan of Bob Dylan. I'm a fan of Bob Dylan. Because if you ever listen to him on Sirius XM, he's like, Theme Time Radio on Sirius XM. You're listening to Bob Dylan. Today's theme is flowers, hydrangeas, chrysanthemums. <laughs> Maybe could we hear Bob Dylan singing Jingle Bells? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, we could uh, maybe start it off with the, like that folky... Greenwich Village, Bob Dylan. Here, let me get this uh, micro, this yeah. uh, harmonica here. This will be helpful. Okay. Uh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride. <laughs> He's always giggling on these songs. <laughs> what fun it is to ride. <laughs> I think Calvin Coolidge said that. <laughs> It's like some professionalism, please, Bob. But then, uh, but then he did. Uh, how about the uh, crooner when he did the crooner kind of the lay lady lay? Oh, yeah, the, the national, national skyline. skyline, Bob Dylan. He had a completely different voice all of a sudden. Yes, he had. It's like jingle bells, jingle bells, I jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Why are you singing like that? <laughs> but then he did the whole like uh, rock band tour, the, like the Rolling uh, Thunder. And he's like touring all over the world. He's filling arenas. He's got the Rolling Thunder Review Band. That's my favorite Dylan because he's unintelligible. He's just screaming. Yeah. Here we go. Oh, well, we I can hear you, Bob. Yeah. I'm two towns over. I can hear you. I can hear you. I don't even need the microphone there. 90s uh, Dylan. And he's just singing like a Disney vulture. He's just, he's singing like he crawled out of a French crypt or something. And the songs have this moody sexiness to them. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. <laughs> oh, my God. Come on now. James Austin Johnson, everyone. We'll be right back with a performance from N. Juliet. Stick around, everybody. Jingle all the way. Jingle all the way. Oh, I'm 
guy is incredible. He's incredible. They'll all be back on Saturday night. And they've been off for about six months because of the writer's strike. And how do you take everything that has happened in the last in the last six months and boil it down into 90 minutes? My God. And I would say, I can't wait to see what they do. But I've already determined that that is one of Adam Wainwright's early crutches. Now, let me just tell you something. In broadcasting, when you get in, you're nervous and your brain is so occupied with all of the stuff sort of going around you that part of your brain just sort of goes on autopilot a little bit. And what happens is you pick up what are called crutches, meaning things that you go to and keep saying over and over and over again because you're comfortable with them and they're sort of top of mind. But after a while, somebody comes to you and says, "Uh, excuse me, Adam, you're saying I can't wait to see what he does tonight. You're saying that like every time. So be aware of that. Be conscious of it. And don't say that anymore. Okay. And how about this Bob Costa story? Speaking of baseball, he's uh, having dinner at a New York City restaurant the other night. And some guy starts choking and Costas hops up and gives the guy the Heimlich maneuver and saves his life. The quote, I don't know if I saved his life, but I saved him from considerable discomfort. That's for sure. This Mary Lou Rutten story is weird on a lot of different levels. She's got some sort of rare form of pneumonia. And her daughter, it says, set up a crowdfunding effort for her because she's uninsured. Now, why would Mary Lou Rutten be uninsured? And then as far as the baseball playoffs are concerned, you already know everything because uh, all this stuff happened last night. But my favorite part of the evening, Nathaniel Lowe hitting for the Rangers. Dean Kramer, the Baltimore pitcher. Here's action in the second inning. We joined it in progress for reasons that will seem apparent. 28 years old in his fifth year in the major leagues. Third one in Texas. Came over from Tampa Bay. A breakout season last year, trying to put his first stamp on this postseason. On the 10 picks, shoots one foul. Make it 11 for low. Well, when you're in a situation like this as a pitcher, you're, you're, you know the pitch you're supposed to make, and that pitch was supposed to never get to the three and two count. And then he's fouling off, fouling off, fouling off, and you're going to be tempted and baited, baited to throw a breaking ball, and I think it's a dangerous pitch to a guy who has struggled with the fastball. 11 pitch of the at-bat, sticks for the fastball, and he's laid on it, as he's been every time he's thrown it. There comes a point, though, after about five, three, four of these in a row, then you you, you got to change your location if you're going to go with a fastball because he is reading the pitch out there. You can throw a breaking ball and get him fooled. There's no doubt. It's just when do you do it? Another fastball and another foul. 13 pitch coming up here. No matter how this ends, Lowe's got to be able to take some good feeling from it. Bakers does it. Wow. Now, see, every one of those have been away. Up and away, he usually doesn't get to it. Now, he's been throwing a cutter and a sinker. You see, the last one was a cutter. It, to tie him up on the inside part of the plate would be the call on a fastball if you feel like you can make that to the glove side of Kramer. Another 3-2 and another foul ball. This is amazing. We're going to have to shrink our font 
on the uh, pitch by pitch, running out of room. All right, now you got to deviate. <laughs> now you throw the breaking ball and try to get him to swing over the top because he's been basically seeing enough fastballs here in this at bat. This is a rare, rarefied error. The marathon reaches a 15 pitch to left field and caught by Hayes, the most impressive lineout in baseball history. Nathaniel Lowe. Oh my goodness. I know it's an out, but say Kramer's going to throw about 90 pitches in this game. You just exhausted like one sixth of those. Yeah. 16 pitches to one batter, and he finally pops out. I had a situation like that right before I had to sit down because of the hip problem. He was in our Wednesday morning league, and this guy fouls off nine straight pitches. Nine. And he's a power hitter, by the way. He looks like he could hit the thing about 7,000 feet. So I'm I'm being careful. I've exhausted everything in my arsenal of pitches. Now it's the 10th pitch. He fouls it off. It's the 11th pitch. He fouls it off. Now everybody in both dugouts are all watching. Everybody's laughing. Like, all right, how's this going to end? And I'm thinking to myself, I've gone this far. I don't want this guy to get a hit. So I have this uh, thing that I call a super change. And it's a change up, but I throw it way up in the air. Almost like if it comes in on an arc, almost like an underhanded softball pitch. And I threw that to the guy and he drilled himself into the ground. Just barely tipped it, went into the catcher's mitt. And that was it. It was out, ended the inning. I shook the guy's hand afterwards. Oh, and as far as that pitcher who was throwing all those pitches to uh, Nathaniel Lowe, Dean Kramer. After all that happened, I go downstairs to Ken Rosenthal. Listen to this. Joe, Dean Kramer holds dual Israeli-American citizenship, and he's pitching tonight as the war between Israel and Hamas enters its fifth day. Both of his parents are Israeli. His younger brother, Niv, is in the Israeli army. Virtually his entire extended family lives in Israel. Kramer said everyone is doing okay and he's grateful for the support he's receiving from his teammates and manager Brandon Hyde. He made it clear he wanted to pitch tonight, but he said the war would be in the back of his mind. There's been a lot of tremendous action in this postseason baseball stuff. I hope you're not missing it because the Cardinals aren't in it anymore and you just give up. A lot of people do that. They just stop watching baseball and you miss all this amazing stuff. It really has been special. All right, today is National Coming Out Day. Lindsey Graham standing there going, why is everybody looking at me? And with that, the J.C. Corcoran podcast for Wednesday, October 11th, 2023 is in the can. We're here every Monday through Thursday at 11 with the J.C. Corcoran podcast. Let everybody know that we're here doing this and also remind them that we're on every morning on 101.5 St. Louis, 101.7 West and Beyond, streaming at kwolf.com. Have a great day. We're right back here in the morning. And in the meantime, we've beaten this one to death. Have a good one. See you later. Bye. J.C. Corcoran Podcast.